Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for attending today. I'd like to thank the speeches. I'll leave introductions to Rowan with the speeches and that. Uh, my name's Kerry Cook. I'm the president of the Blue Mountain Junior Council. Uh, first of all, we have, we've got a raffle today, so people are going around selling raffle tickets, and the prizes are pretty good. I think wine and cakes. Cake. Okay, okay, good yeah. And a book voucher. And a $25 book voucher. And a $25 book voucher. So when we have the raffle, whoever gets, whoever gets the first winning ticket, picks their own, whatever they like. Uh, those who are unaware, you know, we are the Blue Mountain Junior Council, which is we're a community-based group. We have membership forms around the place. On the back, you can see our aims written down there. But as we say, we're just a democratic community group that will support different issues and very much unionism too of course. Okay, well, once again thanks for coming. Now I'd like to uh, introduce Arnie Bell to do a uh, welcome to... Good afternoon. My name is Arnie Bell Orish. I'm the Derrick Elder. If you look in the history books you'll find this is all Derrick. On behalf of my people, both past and present, welcome to your uh, afternoon and welcome to Derrick Nation. Thank you. Hello and welcome again to the Blue Masses Union Council's Politics in the Pub. Um, before we begin, I'd also like to pay my respects to um, the Elders past and present of the Darabin Gunnedale Nations, um, in particular because this is the first event in my area that I've actually spoken to and I currently live in Katoomba and our family has a history with the colonial wars. So I really want to pay my respects to the elders here. Um, I am Rowan Kernerbone, the coordinator of the Injured Workers Support Network and a Katoomba local. My role today is to introduce the topic and then our guest speakers, Emma, Maiden and Rita Malia. And I just want to thank you guys for coming all this way. Um, they come from a place called Shid, Shid? Sydney. Sydney, is that how you say it? Okay, Sydney, I'll have to remember that. Um, it's somewhere on, up the coast or down. Um, I also have to bug you guys to load up your wallets and to dip them into these guys because this is free. To promote it and to run it does need money. So if you guys have anything extra, there is an ATM out there. Um, dig it in, buy a raffle. Cake is going to be beautiful, even though I haven't seen it. $25 gift voucher is always worthwhile as well. And parliamentary wine doesn't taste too bad. Oh, parliamentary <laughs> wine. You, know, you wouldn't believe how many raffles I have not won parliamentary wine in. And, and I've had, had five ministers say they were going to give me it, and they never have. Um, anyway, so buy a raffle ticket, donate some money, enjoy yourself. Um, there are a few points of order we need to put in place before I actually start. The first is that this is a free event, so made so by the generosity of the family in. In return, they ask only one thing, that is that we're out of here by about 4.30. Therefore, at 4.25, my alarm will go off on my phone. Um, I'll commandeer the mic again, and we'll draw the raffle, and then if you want to speak to us afterwards, we will be in the pub. Where else do you find union officials? Um, and if you want to follow, the dinner here is wonderful. I've had it on several occasions. It's great. The second boundary is one that I hopefully won't need to enforce, which is please don't interrupt Emma or Rita as they're speaking. We will open up for questions afterwards. Um, I have a few rules with questions. And the first one is a one-minute rule. If you've got a question, please tell me beforehand. 
If you've got a comment, please tell me beforehand. If it's a question, you basically have one minute. If it's a comment, you basically have two minutes. I'm not too enforceful of that, but there are a lot of people here. Everyone wants to have a say. Everyone wants to have a speak. So please be careful with that. Um, the other thing is a bit more important than that, which is this is a serious topic. I can't control what you're going to say. I don't want to control what you're going to say. But it is a public place, and it's a public event, and it is being taped. So if you want to say something which you believe is confidential or very personal, you have that responsibility to keep that to yourself. Choose other ways to say it if you really want to discuss it. If you do want to discuss something private, then we'll be available afterwards. So please, confidentiality does rest with you. Finally, if you do feel distressed about what we're talking about today or what somebody may say or what you're feeling, um, don't feel compelled to stay here. You can, there are other places here to go and you can come back. If you're feeling really stressful or really stressed out, we have Natasha here, and she can provide you with the numbers of any type of support group or any um, service like Lifeline, which you may speak of, speak to. Um, none of us here are counsellors. I don't think there's a more appropriate lead into today's topic, which is deaths at work. Yesterday was International Workers' Day, Workers' Memorial Day. All over the world, millions of people stopped work and took time out to mourn those who died because of workplace incidents, be it that they didn't come home or they developed a medical condition from their workplace. I personally mourn the loss of my dad, who died in 2005 from exposure to asbestos, which he got before I was even born. If you've never been to one of these events, what generally gets mentioned and what happens is two people from families who have lost something come up and they speak of their personal story and their personal tragedy. It is tear-inducing stories of grief and loss. Next comes the politicians who make their speeches, bemoaning the need to do this speech every year, slipping in how much progress they have made if they're from the government, or how many opportunities they have lost if they're the opposition speakers. The union spokesperson speaks about how the workplace safety is important, and how unions are trying hard in the face of opposition from employers not doing enough to stop the carnage. The departmental spokesperson speaks about how important workplace safety is and how the department is trying hard in the face of opposition by the workers not doing enough to stop the carnage. Statistics are thrown around like confetti, littering speeches of everyone present and the conversations between unions, politicians and department heads afterwards. And then a strange thing happens. You'll see a union official talking to a departmental officer or a politician, and they will both turn their heads and look at the family crying. As they walk past, both people knowing that this is the first time that family has attended this event. The two people will stop, will breathe. The officials will turn, their, turn back to each other, and their conversation will change. It will be quieter. It will lack some of the bravado that was there before. And I know what's going through the heads because I've been there. It's this. We should have tried harder last year to make sure that family never had known this event was even on. I know this scenario happens. I've seen it. I've done it. I've been there with our other two guest speakers as it's happened. And we'll be there again more times than we want before we pass this fight on to others. And that's what today's politics of the pub is about. 
And it's a bit of a strange fit, I've got to say, because politics, populist politics, and all we know about it and recognise about it, plays a very small part in this discussion. We have a moral imperative here. No side, no one involved in this discussion wants to see people die because they've earned a crust. But I don't want you to get confused as well, because politics does lie at the heart of this discussion, this debate. The politics of Plato's day, the politics, of explain, the politics that you use to explain to your kids when they ask you, what is politics? That politics of the weak versus the strong. The powerful versus those without power. And that's what today is about. So time to introduce our guest speakers. VMUC has asked me to pick who I wanted to speak at this, and I reached out to the most dedicated and committed activists in this movement. Thankfully, they both said yes. <laughs> Emma Maiden is the Assistant Secretary of Unions New South Wales. She's been working tirelessly on shoring up union and political support for safe workplaces and better workers' compensation for as long as she can remember. Emma has, possesses a powerful intellect and commitment to work safety, as I've witnessed on numerous occasions over the past three years of my direct involvement with her. So, please welcome Emma. Thanks very much, Rowan. That was a, um, a really lovely introduction. And, and thank you as well, Auntie Val. I would also like to acknowledge Country uh, and the Darug and the um, uh, Gundungara peoples um, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Trish Doyle, um, a long-standing member of the, of the Blue Mountains Community Unions Alliance, as well as, um, of course, Deb, Nick and Kerry, who have played a big role in organising uh, this event, but also uh, they're having a massive role in um, a Blue Mountains Community Unions group. I mean, we're coming up to 30 years, I think, uh, very, very soon. That must have a big event. It's, it's a Bit of, um, it's lost in the mist of time. Lost in the mist of time. <laughs> Let's say close to 30 years. And, and uh, you know, it is impressive uh, to see so many people here. I did do a politics in the pub event in Sydney not too long ago, and I uh, can report that it was smaller than this gathering and, and not nearly as beautiful a room. So thank you for inviting me. I'd also like to acknowledge all the International Day of Mourning events that have taken place uh, around Australia and around the world. I, I think it is so important that we pause and reflect and remember those that have been killed and injured at work. And important as well that we pledge to do everything within our power to prevent future deaths and future injuries, um, as well as uh, doing what we can for those that are living on with the impacts of those deaths and injuries at work. Now, I know Rita's going to talk uh, more about the issue of deaths at work, particularly in the construction industry, and I wanted to talk more about the failure of our society to support injured workers and their families. Um, I mean, this statistic gets bandied around quite a bit, but the cost of injuries, uh, as uh, certified by Safe Work Australia, falls 74% on workers. 21% on society and 5% on employers. Uh, so it's a terrible imbalance in terms of those that are responsible and hold the power in their hands to do more to prevent deaths and injuries. 
Now, I'm not going to pretend that before 2012 the workers' compensation system in New South Wales was perfect, uh, far from it, uh, but certainly since 2012 I would describe the workers' comp system in New South Wales as decimated. Last year um, I was part of uh, the return to work inquiry that Unions New South Wales conducted and we toured around the state uh, about a dozen different towns taking submissions from injured workers and their families. We spoke to about a hundred people and the stories were, were really heartbreaking um, as Rowan has talked about. I met, um, I met Jo and she's the partner of someone who was injured on their way to work after the changes went through in 2012 and he spent five months in intensive care with no income support. Um, I met Amy a youth officer who now works as a barista, and I'm not putting down being a barista, but she wanted to retrain after her injury as a parole officer, but her insurer refused to retrain her. Uh, Lynn, an assistant in nursing who was on the verge, literally hours away from getting her qualification as a nurse when she injured her shoulder, and her specialist says, no, we can operate, that's no problem, you'll be as right as rain, the insurer won't approve it. Won't approve it. So she is in pain and in limbo. Danielle, spinal surgery, delayed because the insurer just didn't approve it in time. Uh, Zara, a retail worker who tried to commit suicide twice and spoke about it to us publicly for the first time. Very brave woman. So it's coming up now in, uh, in June this year to five long years since those workers' compensation changes were made. And the facts about the impact of those changes could not be any more clear. We have had tens of thousands of workers cut off income support. And by the end of this year, another 7,000 will be cut off because of the impact of the five-year cut-off rule. 7,000 more lives that are going to be destroyed. And the government said when they introduced the changes that they were really incentivising return to work. But what they really meant was, uh, what they were referring to, was the six major changes they made to reduce or cut off income support. And they were saying that would incentivise people to return to work, and we all know what a fallacy that is. So they introduced step-downs. They introduced um, uh, reductions in your income if uh, you had fictional employment, uh, basically. Work capacity decisions, uh, a terrible scourge, a new uh, part of the system. The two-and-a-half-year cut-off, all those people have already, have already gone. Um, the five-year cut-off that I spoke about, and I should note that only 4% of all injured workers meet the definition to stay on the system after five years. Only 4%. It's, it's about 2,000 people. So, and then also they have this ridiculous way of calculating your wage after you've been injured that is so complex and so universally misapplied that it is actually quite reducing on a very large scale the uh, income support that people get. And of course we have to also make sure we understand that, that workers are not being cut off because they have another job or their injury has recovered. They are still injured, they don't have comparable work with a comparable income level uh, and they're being cut off. And, um, and finding another job is incredibly hard, uh, about 60% of all People that uh, are interviewed of injured workers, according to our surveys, say they're asked about their workers' comp history by prospective employers, which makes it very hard for them. Um, 
And we also know that employers routinely ignore their return to work obligations. Yet this is one of the best ways we can be helping injured workers where it's appropriate for them to return to that workplace. Um, so our return to work inquiry showed that the, almost the complete failure of the employers to return people to work unless they were 100% fit. And the only examples we had of people who were able to say, I, I'm now, I'm working, I'm, I've, I've got some, something to occupy my time, perhaps not the same income level, was people who, through some good luck or connections, could shift into different careers or back to a career that they had established beforehand. We also know that journey claims have been abolished, and uh, it's pretty stark figures here, about 10,000 claims before the changes were made, about 700 now, and 30% of those are challenged. So the government says they haven't abolished journey claims, but they have all but done that. And uh, so ridiculously unfair, given it's only 2.6% of the cost of, of all claims, such an easy thing it would be to restore those. Uh, medical support, we estimated in 2012 and 2013 alone, about 26,000 people cut off medical support. And don't, that's because uh, initially, under the system, you only had 12 months of, of medical support once your income support ended. So that's irrespective of whether you needed more surgery or, or even, in fact, if you needed ongoing medical treatment or medication to remain in work. Um, and we also have pre-approval now of medical procedures, um, which, uh, which puts a lot of power in the hands of non-medical staff to decide whether or not treatments are necessary, which is just wrong. Uh, we know sick and injured workers are being driven to despair and to suicide by the changes. Uh, and that's because the system removes the safety net. Under the old system, you did always have some kind of safety net, perhaps an inadequate one, but it existed. Um, and that just really uh, magnifies those feelings of helplessness. So on, based on our research, people that have been on the scheme for three years or longer, 25%, have suicidal thoughts, and of the 100 people we talked to in our inquiry, uh, 44 were suffering from depression and 7 mentioned suicidal thoughts. Now, iCare keeps no data whatsoever on this, which I think is just absolutely scandalous. Uh, but we did get coronial data on suicides in New South Wales, and there was a massive unexplained spike in suicide rates in New South Wales in 2012, and 2013 and 2014 were well above the long-term average. It's very disturbing and with the 7,000 people that are coming up at the end of this year I am worried and we have certainly been talking to the authorities about what they're doing in that respect. We also know that the workers' comp system is now more than ever constructed to serve the interests of employers and insurers. Employers have had over $650 million back in their pockets as a result of massive premium reductions since the changes were made. We know the insurance companies operate with a 19% profit margin. That is their business model. It's in public documents. And there are layers and layers of consultants that are feeding off the system under the guise of helping injured workers but who are not doing anything except exploiting injured workers and trying to get them off the system quicker. And the surplus is now about $4 billion, so it's, it's, it's big enough to um, wind back a lot of these changes. So we at Unions New South Wales have tried to continue to keep the pressure on the government over the last five years. 
and that's involved us, us doing having independent research from Macquarie University. We had three reports over a course of three years about the impact of the cuts. We've done our surveys with you know, over 2,000 respondents every year, every year of injured workers. We've had a steady stream of media in Sydney and in the regions with stories from injured workers. Every anniversary of the changes, we've had an event uh, to highlight the impacts. We had their return to work inquiry last year. We've made submissions to uh, more inquiries than I would like to uh, reflect on too much. This is my most recent one that I'm particularly proud of to the first actual statutory review of the scheme, which has the details of the 100 stories in full. Uh, I mean, names changed, but um, de-identified. Um, so, and we've also created and promoted the 12 principles of workers' compensation reform, which we are very proud of and which we believe will restore justice to the system. Now, we have had uh, some success in winding back some of the worst excesses of the changes, and I think that is because of the pressure we've managed to keep on. Um, the medical cap now has changed. It's gone from one year to now being between two and five years, depending on how injured you are. There's some secondary surgery in limited circumstances. That threshold for serious injury where you get to stay on the system after five years reduced by a third from 31% to whole person impairment to 21. Um, there's now some forms of free legal representation, including with work capacity decisions. We've separated the conflicted insurance and regulatory arms. Um, there's life lifetime cover for hearing aids and crutches and artificial <coughs> limbs and that kind of stuff. But it's not nearly, it really is not nearly enough. The system is absolutely broken and that's what we're, we're saying it must be scrapped, that we must start again. And this is the conversation that we are having with the Labor Party, importantly. Um, and and our, the new, we're saying the new system must be based on these 12 principles which we did develop with Injured Worker Support Network and the unions. And those 12 principles do include a focus on prevention, uh, which uh, is, of course, incredibly important for preventing deaths and injuries. So we will keep fighting for justice for injured workers. And this year, we are want to work with Labor and the crossbenchers in the New South Wales Parliament on private members' bills around five particular things that we want to change. Uh, we want to abolish those five-year limits. We want to spare those 7,000 workers. We want to add reality to the definition of suitable employment so that people can't be cut off when, uh, on the basis they have some kind of fictional employment. We want to boost return to work rates by putting more onus on employers to do the right thing. We want to prohibit prospective employers from being able to ask about someone's workers' comp history and we want to reinstate journey claims. And we say they are all imminently affordable within the current surplus in the workers' comp system. So thank you all for coming here today to commemorate the International Day of Mourning and coming together like this. It's so important. And uh, thank you for supporting Rowan and the Injured Workers Support Network and, and our Workers' Comp campaign. And I look forward to working with you on that over the course of the next few years. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Adam, just point out, none of that was being facetious or political. When she talks about fictional employment, we actually mean fictional employment, employment that does not exist at all. So I'd like to now introduce Rita. Um, Rita is president of the CFMU Construction General Division, and if that's not enough, she's also um, the 
Vice President of Union New South Wales, and if that's not enough, she's a stalwart supporter, a concrete supporter of the Workplace Tragedy and Family Support Group, which probably does the most in this area to support families who have lost someone, um, and that deserves a huge amount of respect. Um, also, just as importantly, and something that I take a lot of, not take, but give a lot of respect to, to, to Rita, is that she's appeared several times in court. Um, defending the actions and taking the fines for closing down work sites after a worker has died or has been seriously injured. So she not only is the president, she's down there fighting every single day for the families and the workers who go through this. And I give you lots of respect for that. Rita. Um, so, firstly, I want to acknowledge that we meet on Aboriginal land and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Thanks, Rowan. Uh, it's great to be here with Emma. It's lovely to just have a forum of two women leaders, so that's fantastic. And, uh, and really thank you all for turning out today and, uh, and for the Blue Mountains Union, Community Unions Group organising this event. So, as you know, yesterday was International Day of Mourning and we were all down at um, Darling Park to uh, really honour the families and there were a number of them, unfortunately, that that have to turn up every year to, not that they would ever forget their loved ones day to day, but for us to be able to honour the ultimate sacrifice that those families have made, really in the pursuit of profit. I mean, these are workers who get up in the morning, they go home, they're supposed to go home at night, and too many of them haven't. And uh, this year alone there have been 51 fatalities, not just in construction, but across the board, but a large number of them are in construction. The last in Sydney was a worker whose life support machine was turned off on the 23rd of March. Um, oh, there was one yesterday. Oh, I missed that one. Um, the one I know about, uh, this worker was here very, very recently from Lebanon. I'm not sure on what basis, a student or a visitor. Found himself working on a building site. Nobody really knows how he got there or who he worked for. Was um, on the line of the concrete pump. The, the line explodes and he suffers uh, a fatal injury and his family had to come from Lebanon. They had him on life support until they were able to come here and say goodbye to their 27-year-old son. Prior to that was the 1st of March, which was Tim McPherson in his 30s, who died at Barangaroo when hit by a falling steel beam, uh, leaving a wife with a 14-month-old son and his wife being three months pregnant. So these are real families, these are real people, and unfortunately a large number of them are very young people as well, not that age should really matter. So every, uh, last October we had a number of mass meetings because in October last year we suffered five fatalities. That's one month of one year. And they were in, um, I'll just go to the details, because they're just, and the thing about all of these is every single one of these, I can't even call them accidents, crimes are, are preventable. So the 6th of October you had the two young men at uh, the race course in um, Eagle Farm Racecourse in Queensland where two panels came down, 10 tonne panels came down upon them, killing them immediately. The 10th of October there was the 27 year old German backpacker who was on a bucket um, and went down a lift shaft, uh, no harness and uh, she was doing some roof work. Uh, not worked in the building industry prior to coming to Australia as a backpacker. Her employer, who's a criminal, Jerry Hansen, sent an email to her family saying, well, you know, um, your daughter would be, Mar Marianka would be 
really very apologetic for putting you through all of this distress. And, uh, you know, she he's absolutely abominable, this man. He should be in jail. That's what he wrote to the family, taking no responsibility himself for... Uh, the, the site, the Western Australian branch had been blocked from that site, not been able to enter it on many occasions and made many complaints to the regulator there about the conditions of that project. In Perth, 25th of October, um, Irma De Silva, a form worker, who had been working down at Barangaroo but was killed on a, you know, dodgy apartment building site out in um, Fairfield, I think it was, where he came down on a Rio bar that actually was capped but it still killed him. So even the things that we think might prevent for t fatal injuries aren't necessarily the answer. And then you had a 54-year-old border maker on a building site in Victoria was killed in a crushing um, incident. So it's just, for us, it's become almost a weekly event um, and it's very disturbing. Every one of those fatalities is preventable. It is just a breakdown of a system. It's the non-implementation of a system. It's the failure to train people. It's the failure to employ people who actually know what they're doing. Um, and failure to... Uh, to properly upskill, induct, uh, supervise, manage what's going on site. In the meantime, there are these immense pressures on site, which probably occurs in every workplace, um, to get stuff built, get stuff done. Buildings go up in and around um, this place at a very, very high, you know, fast rate, and, um, and they really are death traps. And then at the same time, we've got the federal government. That's um, now passed the legislation to bring back the Australian Building and Construction Commission and it's all its uh, glory. It's a $39 million taxpayer-funded inspectorate which basically spends all its time shadowing our officials and then um, starting prosecutions against all of us for breaches of the Fair Work Act, be it right of entry breaches. Um, I've been sued for causing adverse action to um, Boral about some protected industrial actions we took on behalf of some workers who were um, fighting for an enterprise bargaining agreement. So I don't know how adverse action became, you know, something that employers could suffer. But anyhow, there you go. Um, and I'm yet to see an ABCC inspector actually attend a site where a fatality or a serious injury or accident has happened. So they don't really care. It's completely a political exercise. Um, and one that is really just uh, the agenda is to keep us out and, and to use, you know, the, the, the law and really quite extraordinary fines. Um, we've, you know, forked out across the country millions and millions of dollars of fines and you don't want to waste members' money on paying fines to the federal government to help fund these bodies. But at the end of the day, as uh, Sally McManus so bravely said, when bad laws are there, you've got to break them. And uh, we've had to take that course to ensure we can actually remain relevant to our members and be out on site because that's where we do our best work is when we're actually present on the job, uh, empowering workers who ultimately can then take up issues themselves, but also for us to be, um, you know, the second pair of eyes where the regulators and the builders, etc., uh, aren't so uh, proactive. Attached to the ABCC thing was the uh, code now in construction and, and um, I had a look at the first of the assessments that they've made against draft, one of our draft EBAs. Basically, uh, an they want a 24-7 industry. So if an employer and employee, for example, we have rostered days off. We have some flexible ones and we have some mandated shutdown weekends, six a year. Building workers work six or seven days a week. Um, there's six public holiday weekends where we say, you know, you shut down the jobs on Saturday and on Monday. They've got the audio on Tuesday. They basically get a four-day weekend. Most building workers do not see their kids play sport on a Saturday, for example. Uh, the ABCC has said in its assessment that those sorts of clauses 
are unlawful if the, if the, if the uh, company who does those EBAs wants to do Commonwealth Government work. So uh, basically an employer, an employee cannot, in an enterprise bargaining agreement, this is not even the award, an enterprise bargaining agreement that's actually lawful under the Fair Work Act, can't negotiate to have six weekends where everybody has the day off on a Saturday and spends a bit of time to, you know, get over fatigue and to spend a bit of time, family leisure time with their families. Uh, but even worse, the code um, really makes it really almost impossible, although we're going to still do it, for us to be on site, to be consulted, to even be invited. An employer or a subby or a project manager or a site supervisor, and we have relationships that are good with 90% of the people that we interact with. It's not a war out there as they like to, to uh, portray it. They can't even choose to invite one of us to come along and speak about an issue or to address a forum or to maybe help address a safety issue or negotiate a policy, which we've all done many, many times. That would be in breach of the code and that would put that principal contractor or that subcontractor uh, at odds with the government and they would not be able to tender for Commonwealth government work. So that's where we are in construction and um, they, want a, they just basically want a 24-7 operation where the union has no role to play to represent uh, workers and it's... It's lip service where they say, you know, you can have agreements between employers and employees. Because the thing about employees is if they're not supported by their union, it's very hard for people to stand up and take a stance when they feel that their jobs are now on the line. And there are many other things going on in the industry that compound that. Quite frankly, WorkSafe, or whatever they're called now, really a lacklustre uh, performance by them, really. Um, there's a lot of good inspectors, I've got to say that. But in terms of the bureaucracy, they are not proactive. It's all, it's all after the event. And even after the event, it's pretty inadequate. Um, you then combine that with, you know, bureaucracy that's a mess. I mean, I was trying to deal with a member's uh, problem yesterday, and I'll, I'll go to that in a sec, uh, where I had to find my way through some maze in eye care. This bloke can't speak English. He's pretty, pretty lucky to have me. He's, he's able to sort of, you know, bail up Peter Dunphy after the event last, uh, last yesterday and just say, who do I talk to in ICARE to help this guy get this money? Because he got injured on the 1st of February and has not received one red cent from anybody. And uh, he's in, he doesn't even know who his employer is. That's how poor arrangements were on the site. And everybody's running away from the principal contractor to the four contractors who potentially could be his employer. So, um, but it shouldn't take that to look after people who are injured at work. Um, you've got increased casualisation, you've got, you know, increased use of... Uh, and these are not just in the construction industry, these are everywhere. Um, uh, casualisation, sham subcontracting, the ease by which contracts can be sublet and sublet and sublet down the chain so that builders don't even know at the end of the day who is actually doing the work and how they're doing it and what really the mechanism of supervision and training, etc. is in place. They all profit from that. That just... You know, they take the risk, they hope it all goes well, and that just maximises their profit at the end of the day because safety does cost money. And if you're going to do safety well, you do have to invest in the systems and in the people and in the, in the, in the management of those systems. And if you don't do it and you get away with it, then you are actually making a significant amount of profit. Um, the temp, the uh, exploitation of temporary foreign labour, whether it's backpackers, 457 visa workers, students. I mean, we've been very vocal around the issue of 457 visa um, uh, rorts, basically. And that's not an anti-immigration thing. We're an industry built on um, immigration. But where we support permanent migration to Australia, and what we're seeing now in the last few weeks is really quite you know, horrific when you think about how it's going to change Australia. But, um, you know, the exploitation of people who are temporarily here, who are in such precarious positions, they are never going to complain about anything. You've got to find them. You've got to help them. 
Um, but they're not going to ever come to you very easily because they just know that their visas will be at risk, their passports are taken off them, and they think they're going to lose their jobs. But even people who are casual workers or on ABNs who are just working, or labour hire, which is you know growing in our industry, unfortunately. People who have no control over the hours of work that they work, they're not permanent positions, and so they don't have the power to complain about issues of safety, let alone whether or not they're receiving their proper wages and um, entitlements. And that's just, um, that's just continuing to grow, and that's a feature in, I think, many, many industries, but it is prevalent in the construction industry. The one thing we've got at the moment in New South, in Sydney at least, is we've got a lot of work, and there's a uh, high demand for labour, and um, there are some trades that are difficult to get work for, to, workers for to do, because there's just so much work on, and that has given some workers some capacity to use that power to uh, get a little bit more out of it than um, they would otherwise have. Uh, inadequate fines and penalties, I think some employers should go to jail. I was reading the other day the truck driver who got sent to jail for three years for negligent driving and I don't know, you know, he, he didn't kill anybody as far as I know and, and, you know, maybe that was a serious breach of the road safety laws but when has an employer gone to jail for killing a worker? It's, it's, that has to, go, it has to happen, there has to be proper industrial manslaughter laws. We sort of half had them under the Work OHS Act before the, um, the changes to the, the national safety regime. Uh, but I just think these cases are generally criminal. They're not just negligence, they're not accidents. These are people who are putting at risk the lives of workers and taking their lives in too many circumstances. And then you've got works, you know, you've got regulators who won't take action. So there is a um, case in South Australia at the moment where the South Australian government has now agreed to a coronial inquiry. A worker was crushed in a formwork, um, not a formwork, in a uh, cherry picker, found the next day. Nobody really knows how he came to be crushed because he's working alone. Absolute breach of, um, of uh, work health and safety. Uh, was t his, his partner, Pam, um, who's just an amazing advocate, she was told, yep, the prosecution's going ahead, it's all, we've got the uh, witnesses lined up, it's all going to happen. The Friday before the Monday that the hearing was going to start, she was rung up by that regulator and told, actually, we think the evidence is not credible and we're not going to pursue that prosecution. She is absolutely devastated. And, uh, you know, the South Australian government's now agreed to a corroding inquiry, but it's hardly going to be justice, um, you know, for her at losing her partner and not knowing what... Um, and having nobody accountable. And this is happening far too often. We're being fined millions of dollars for, you know, lobbying up on site, representing our members, um, and yet there are no big penalties coming out of the District Court in New South Wales. Uh, $225,000 each for a principal contractor and a subcontractor for a death of a uh, Canadian backpacker in 2013. The builder makes multi-million dollar apartments. $225,000 is a, you know, so they've probably got it in their bank account. You know, it's not a punishment, it's not justice, and these families are left um, devastated. In that case, uh, the parents of that deceased worker and the worker who was with, his best mate who was with him and pretty much died in his arms, are still waiting to have their common law claims determined and paid out, you know, four years after the event. So we get prosecuted for millions of dollars, they prosecute us, those cases come on within six months, they're done in 12 months and we pay a fine in 18 months. And you've got injured workers and their families waiting, waiting three, four, five years for a pittance in compensation, uh, their loved ones are never going to obviously be brought back by the money, but, you know, it's justice, and they are waiting all of this time for, you know, really the minimum amount of justice. The system is broken. It really is. And, uh, you know, I'd hope that with forums like this we can expose, expose those injustices more um, broadly, 
particularly, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a political fix to this, and it means, you know, turfing out the lot that are here, getting proper commitments from the next lot and making sure we, as Emma says, rebuild the system. Uh, and the compo system, you know, it is broken. I mean, having to, you know, monster the CEO of one part of WorkSafe to get the names of somebody in iCare to help a worker who has been waiting four months to have the GIO determine whether he is or is not a worker, and he is a worker. I don't know how someone who gets called up to turn up a building site climbs a ladder that's not properly fixed. The ladder collapses under him. He's got serious back injuries. He's a refugee applicant, so he gets no Medicare. He can barely speak English, and uh, he's received nothing from the system. It's, it's um, an extraordinary... Um, well, it's a disgrace, really. So from our perspective, the carnage continues. It, c it continues almost with impunity. Um, and at the same time, the protections that workers have, the laws, their capacity to have good, strong unions represent them, um, you know, and, uh, you know, robust statutory and regulatory authorities, are, you know, are, are under attack or diminishing. So we are two very, you know, working hard with Emma and, and all the other unions um, to try and turn this around because it really is a, a national disgrace. And, uh, and at the same time, you've got multi-million dollar corporations making bucket loads of profit, paying no tax and really getting away with uh, the most reprehensible carnage. So I'll leave it at that. I'm happy to take any questions, and um, it's really great to be here. Thanks, Rob. Thank um, we had a train worker die yesterday on the tracks. Yeah. Um, and that's just news that came to hand to the RTBU while the memorial was going on. So this is real. These are people. We don't talk about stats a lot anymore because it's just hard to get it through exactly what those are. So we could talk about the 150 people died last year. There are 120,000 New South Wales workers who were injured. But when I think about the 150, I always think about them being 150 extra grave sites rather than the stats. So that makes it, to me, that makes it important. Um, and a bit more special, because it can get a bit too much. You can think about, we've done this, I've been involved for three years directly. Um, hearing stats every day, hearing people every day, you can turn yourself away from it. But there are people behind it, and we get to speak to the people. And God bless me, I hope nobody else has to. So I'll open it up for questions. Just remember, if you've got a comment, please tell me you've got a comment. Um, try to keep it as short as possible. If you've got a question, please tell me you've got a question. Try to keep it as short as possible so we can fit everybody else in. Um, and we have the Roman Nick with the Roman Mike, um, who will come and make sure you do it. So any type of questions about this issue, please answer. We have that lady. How is the law allowed to get through in the first place? How was the law allowed to get through in the first place? Um, it's 3.15 we've got to be out by 4.30. Um, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who wants to go with that one? Neoliberal agendas. So, uh, yeah, so the government, uh, the Liberal government had their agenda and they, uh, they, they bowled up an issues paper and, uh, and they announced an inquiry and, uh, and within six weeks it was passed by Parliament. Yeah, so it was a very, very, very quick process, uh, probably the most intense six weeks of my life, to be honest. Um, uh, and really one of the main... Uh, obviously, we must sheep responsibility home to the Conservatives, 
the Liberal government. Mike Baird was the treasurer at the time. Uh, now he's moved on as well. But um, but Fred Nile did play a, a really big role. So right at the beginning, we tried to meet with the crossbenchers. We managed to get him to meet with the shooters and fishers, uh, which I remember Mark Lennon saying to me as we walked in, get ready to have your faith in democracy eroded. And, uh, and that was true, like they really had no idea. And I said, look, I, you know, I said, I pledge to you, I will give you an honest answer to every question. I, if you need someone to research something, I will find out for you. This is a technical area. I'm not that competent in it either. I will find the answer and give you honest advice. And they, they just weren't interested in engaging in the detail. Fred refused to take our meeting until the legislation was introduced, in, and it was introduced one day and it was passed overnight that night. And so we, Mark and I, I remember, got in to see Fred. He was just so not interested. I mean, this man calls himself a Christian. I'm not a Christian, but my God. Um, and, sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, and, and he wasn't, thank you, he was not, um, interested in the detail at all. I remember there was one thing that just seemed to go in his brain and he asked me to email him about that one thing, which I did. That part of the bill didn't get up uh, and he, he passed it. And he's had the gall to come back to Unions New South Wales and promise that he was going to, um, you know, have it reviewed and then, and then he, he is worse than the Conservatives in many respects here because he holds himself out to have all these strong values and, and he doesn't come through with them. So, so the crossbenchers did play an important role because the government didn't have, you know, the, the numbers without them. Um, but, um, you know, this is, you know, government policy. New South Wales did have the best workers' comp system in the country, despite its flaws before then, and they wanted to reduce it. They used the surplus as a stalking horse to try and to mount the arguments, not the surplus, I'm sorry, the deficit that allegedly existed, but that wasn't a deficit because of the, ben the benefits or income support being paid to injured workers, that was because of some bad investment decisions by WorkCover, uh, and it was completely overestimated because they increased the assumptions about the amount of money they needed to pay for, pay for the tail. So this so-called $4 billion deficit really wasn't. It might have been deficit a bit, but it would have come back by its own accord anyway. And what we have always said, and what we're doing some work around now, is if you prevent, if you, if you, if you focus on that, I mean, they've dropped the ball, work cover, in that respect completely. The number of prosecutions and pin notices is, is just dramatically reduced. But if you focus on prevention and if you focus on, on actually getting injured workers back to work, or retraining if they can't return to that workplace, then you don't have a big tail. You really do only have those very severely <coughs> people who are incapable of working on the system, and they should be provided with an appropriate level of support for the rest of their lives. So, uh, so that's how it happened. Um, despite the fireys blockading Parliament in the dying days, which was was um, pretty incredible to be part of. It just with the numbers in the parliament and with Fred Nile and his politics, it just wasn't possible to stop. Uh, but I am proud of what we've managed to, uh, you know, drag back, um, and and we're not giving up on that. Um, I mean, we we have um, you know really strong dialogue with Labor about what they'll do in government, 
Um, but I don't want to even use the next two years, lose the next two years. We've got to keep making improvements. You know, we can't wait that long. Injured workers can't wait that long. Thank you. Um, I might throw my own two cents in there. I'm aware that the unions in total spent a million dollars in those six weeks to try and fight it. Um, I've also was, I suppose I need to take the blame for Fred Nile since then. Um, I'm saying this nervously, so no, IW says... No. Sorry? You don't need to do that. <laughs> um, Fred Nile came back into it and apologised to the Injured Workers Support Network for his actions in those six weeks, same with the shoots and fishes. Um, he promised us an upper house inquiry, which Emma was alluding to, which he hasn't done. Um, the Shooters and Fishers. I did actually invite the new member for the Shooters and Fishers here. He wasn't able to be here because of another event that's happening in his local electorate. Um, the Shooters and Fishers are, I would say, fairly much on site with us now. The thing is that they, they'll, they just, it's not their big issue. So they, they want... They'll, Fred will let them have their head on their big issues, and this isn't one of their big issues, so they let Fred have his head and take the lead on this because, you know, this is an issue that Fred's... Yeah, so you know, Fred's up against it this time around because he's promised us in writing that he will make sure that the laws don't go back, don't get worse. The Upper House inquiry that's happened is wishy-washy, um, to say the least. Um, I know the Labor Party and the Greens Party tried their hardest to get it, but it was all done by liberal politics. Fred's promised that it won't get worse. There are some things in that thing that may make it worse. So we'll, he's up for a test again. Um, next question. The other lady in red. Thanks, Rose. I'm actually Emma and Anita, um, if you don't mind. Emma pointed out, sorry, Emma pointed out that um, Fred Nile was reverse some of the worst excesses of this new legislation. And Rita was pointing out that all we've got to do is claw back government, really, in 23 months' time. But what can we do between now and then to convince those that didn't see the relevance of this two years ago and voted to return this government? They, they seem not to have understood the enormity of it all that affects us all, all those that are working, or have anyone in the family that's working. I mean, I think we've just, you know, we've really got to start more uh, effectively highlighting injustice and you know Rowan's group do it fantastically we're all uh, got our busy days we've all got you know people who are at work don't expect that they're going to be injured so even engaging with workers in our own industry who all know people that have been injured who've probably experienced a fatality in their working life uh, still don't necessarily engage with the issue and compo because they don't think it's going to happen to them um, so I think that you know just continuing to try and make this an election issue workers comp's never been an election issue you know, it's just not something that resonates with the general public. It's not going to change the government of the day. But we've got to make it um, something that's important, important for Labor. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a member of the Labor Party. I want them to win the government. And I don't want them to, you know, negotiate with the likes of, you know, the, the likes of Fred Nile, who's quite frankly a liar. And has probably, I've been doing this for 21 years, right? He's made a lot of promises <laughs> in the time he's been in Parliament. And he's reneged on every single one of them. Yeah. Whether it's in writing or not, I mean, the man is really the devil, quite frankly. But anyhow, um, that's my personal view about him. You're probably going to sue me for slander, but anyhow, join the line. Um, but I just think we just need to try to expose these injustices in a much better way. I mean, social media and other things now give us, I think, an opportunity like never before, and support workers to come out and tell their stories because it seems politicians on all sides are deaf to union officials. They're deaf to 
you know, Labour Party activists or activists, and the only thing that sometimes moves them is to hear the stories themselves of the people who are suffering. And that's why days like International Day of Morning, as much as it galls me to hear some of those politicians speak who have actually set up the system that has caused this pain and this injury, uh, you, need, you still need to have them and you still need to engage with them and you still need to introduce them to these families who've suffered so much and maybe we'll even move the worst of them uh, to look at the system in a different way. Yeah, I do agree with Rita. I don't, I don't, I think we, we can do, uh, we'll try our hardest to make it an important issue in the election, but I don't think it will ever be a central issue in the election. Um, and um, uh, what, what we do, and I don't mind why people vote to change the government, to be honest, like as long as they do vote to change it. So we need to find, you know, the, enough of the right issues whether they be workers' comp or penalty rates or privatisation or hospital, uh, public hospitals, there's, there's enough issues for um, people to be voting to reject this government. We just need to prosecute the right campaign around those issues and then have have Labor well and truly uh, on board, which, which the 12 principles are part of Labor Party policy uh, in every state now as well as nationally. So... Um, uh, but, you know, like as Rita alluded to, sometimes there can have to be negotiations in government if they don't win enough of a majority and other things. So um, we need to keep working with the Labor Party to make sure that we are on a complete unity ticket about the implementation of the changes. Um, and, and certainly, I, I don't, I, all the signs are very positive so far, so I, I'm not raising any flags there at all. Um, and, uh, and we do need to keep raising the issue. At the last election, Workers' comp was the number two issue that people raised in terms of bad things the government had done, and I think that is a legacy of that million dollars that I spent in six weeks. I <laughs> don't ever expect to be given a budget like that again. Um, but uh, you know, but it, we haven't obviously been able to maintain that level of, of, um, of advertising and activity, but we have just tried to be constant about it, and we will continue to do that. Um, as someone who does this every day, I'll just add, what we need is activists to do this every single day. Um, I work with a lot of injured workers, turning them into activists. Unfortunately, the promise of an injured worker is only worth the amount of pain they're feeling that day. So it's a lot of hard work. It is heartbreaking. But we need people to actually come down to Parramatta or to Granville or into the city to the Unions of South Wales to be there to keep the momentum going and to share the experiences with injured workers, to train them how to be activists themselves. Most of the wins, and I'm sorry about this union, guys, most of the wins that we've got have been after we've sent injured workers to talk to politicians, to talk to um, departmental officers. Most of the wins have happened after those meetings. So a lot of the... You guys have done a lot. No word of a lie. Without you guys, we'd be, we'd be nowhere. But every time, every time there's a win, I can point to a conversation that an injured worker has had with somebody else in power. Um, so that's what we need. I'd also like to, in political fairness, to say that the Greens also support the 12-point plan. Um, they have gone further than the Labor Party for what they're willing to do. Um, but at the last election, last day election, we had 87% of all standing candidates support the 12-point plan and the Injured Workers Support Network's attempts to change the legislation. So 87% of all candidates standing. The ones that weren't, um, you could guess, Liberal Party, National Party, not all the National Party, by the way, National Party, Australian Communist Party, and the Australian Far Right. 
So they're the ones. So yeah, if you want to keep this up, come and talk to me afterwards, come and talk to Emma. We need people on the ground nearly every day on this. Next question. Uh, the New South Wales Police Force are exempt from these arch laws. Now I wonder if any worthwhile groups like nurses, the fireys are exempt from the past law, I believe. The paramedics are not. Um, so the fireys and then no other group is exempt from the past laws. From these laws. For police, well, in my opinion, police force have a union, mem union member density of 98%. The fireys are at 99%. The fireys have big trucks, so the police, and you saw them um, compared. But the police in particular got through because Fred and I refused to make the changes because his son is a police officer. The fireys are because they would have been back every day spraying that um, old parliament house of ours. That's fair to say, yeah? They were an amazing campaign. Yeah. And lastly, I wish you'd stop calling that Niall person by his first name. <laughs> I'm apologising for that, but I will continue to do that. Next question. I've got a question if no one else has. <laughs> you, you say rightly that no employers ever go to jail. It's a bit like bankers, isn't it? They just seem there's another exemption. But I wonder, the union must have thought about this. Have you ever thought of taking them to court on behalf of the, of the wor injured worker or killed worker? Uh, well, so we used to have the right to prosecute in New South Wales before the harmonised laws, and we did bring a lot of prosecutions um, for a union. Not very many unions did it, but we actually did do it when WorkCover vacated the field or didn't decide to take up a prosecution themselves. Upon the harmonised laws, uh, we lost that right. We have a capacity only to prosecute, I think, minor breaches of the Work Health Safety Act, so it doesn't really give you the sort of satisfaction that you would otherwise get um, for, a, for a family member. And then obviously we have um, our union lawyers who run all the common law claims and all the compo claims and whatever legal actions that are still available to um, injured workers and their families as limited as they are. So we're actually pretty active. Uh, not all unions have the same focus on workers' comp as we have, but traditionally uh, the CFMU has. And I started in 1996 as the workers' comp officer. That was my job. Um, so we've really been sort of active around this issue um, because of the nature of the industry that, that, that you know, our members work in. Um, but yeah, I'd love the you know, power to prosecute again. We do do prosecutions under the Fair Work Act, so we do right of entry prosecutions. I mean, they don't directly necessarily benefit uh, individual workers and their families, but if we're hindered and obstructed from entering on site and it's done unlawfully, then we take up those cases. So, like we've been fined millions of dollars, we've actually been successful in having employers fined for, um, you know, hindering our capacity to get on the projects and, and um, deal with issues of safety. They're generally safety disputes. I mean, um, you know, that's probably 80% of a construction organiser's um, work. I mean, they recruit members along the way and we negotiate enterprise agreements, but uh, their presence on site, by and large, is about the issues of safety. And, uh, and oftentimes we've had to prosecute to have the right to actually get on a, get on a project. And then you've got you know, big companies who take uh, orders out against us and then we've got to you know, negotiate protocols to be able to get back into a workplace. Because the, the work health and safety law is pretty crap. Uh, the uh, workers' comp laws are crap and quite frankly the Fair Work Act itself 
is rubbish. I mean, I know it was meant to be an improvement from work choices, but it has not worked well for unions, it's not worked well for workers, uh, and it's actually now empowered employers like never before. So, um, you know, if you're going to change something else, it's the federal, it's what's going to happen next, which is a federal election, and it's really ripping up the Fair Work Act and starting again, because the industrial system in this country does not work for workers, and it certainly doesn't support uh, trade unions to recruit and organise and get workers up to active on the job, because at the end of the day, one organiser isn't going to change the world, but if you can organise workers to take a stand collectively on a project to ensure that you know their lives are not put at risk, that's what we should be encouraging. And unfortunately, we have a set of laws that does completely the opposite. Rowan, you said something about uh, activists. Yes. I'd like to add a little bit to that. Sure. So act to be an activist, you must have the information. How many people do you walk out in the street and ask them what's actually happening to the people in the workplace? No one does No one cares because they've got their own problems, their own way of life. To activate, you've got to be able to get information out there. The things you've been talking about, the three of you, in the literature, so you can hand it out to people so that they know, start to get that feeling of actually what's going on. And so that their mind, is, when it comes to election, their mind switched on to something which is happening and no one's doing anything about it. And that's what you need to do. You need to sit down, get some really good literature out there, then people can get out there and start handing this information out. Emma. Well, yeah. You know, Just in Miles, I know we know each other. <laughs> so, so we have, um, because it has been the first statutory review and we really felt that, I mean, I thought the figures have been clear for a while, the facts, but we did think it was time to, uh, to have a handy-dandy flyer and, uh, and this does try to capture what my big submission uh, talked about in some detail about how bad it's got. And, and also focuses on those five things that we're going to focus on changing this, trying to change this year and ask people to be part of the campaign team. So, so we do recognise that, yeah, to even just have a conversation, you do need a piece of paper sometimes. That's why we do do our hard copy petitions uh, for our um, community groups as well as, as having all the online stuff. Um, and so, yeah, we, we do want to have people going out there to street stalls and uh, market fairs and in their own workplaces or in their other um, groups that they're part of and giving them little assets that can they can leave with people and even going to have meetings with MPs and stuff as well that has got some information but is accessible and, and, um, and that's what we're trying to do here. It's just in the final stages of uh, development. Thanks. I, I, I noticed... Uh uh, in the uh, federal election campaign on the, the health side of things. When we mentioned to people about what was actually help, happening in the health side of it, uh, uh, no, that's not happening. I, I don't think that's true. I'll go and check on it. And what they used to do is they'd go away and check on it. Next week they'd come along when we were campaigning again, I'll sign that petition. Because mm. they've gone and checked the, the information to see if, it's, if it is correct or not. So, the first part is that information you've got there, and that's a good idea. Uh, it's really important to get the information out. And we're getting better at using social media, people being on Facebook and posting things and sharing things and sharing their own stories. And as Rowan said, the stories are the really powerful things in this space, and they are the things that move some of the you know, most staunchest anti-worker uh, politicians sometimes. So, uh, you know, 100% agree with you. And I think it goes to what Emma's point is, the campaign really starts now. We can't wait till 2019 to start having the conversation with people about what, um, 
you know, what's going on. And, it, and it's also the democracy in which we live. We had that rally a few weeks ago about penalty rates and ABCC. Uh, every single one of our members, employers, got a letter from the uh, ABCC saying if your employees go to this rally, they actually are threatened with $22,000 fines and you'll have to dock them four hours pay. So, you know, you're having the government prevent people exercise their democratic rights to take a position about this stuff. And that's, you know, that's the other part of what's happening here. And that's why sometimes it is difficult to get people to be activated around these issues. Because if you're getting a letter from your employer saying, you know, you're going to be fined $22,000, and there have been 400 construction workers in this country prosecuted by their government for taking what they call unlawful industrial action. Uh, and, a, and a lot of those have been attending rallies and attending protests and trying to highlight, you know, the injustices that are occurring in their industry. So there's actually a whole bunch of stuff going on here that makes sometimes that communication difficult, but we've just got to keep doing it. Um, sorry, just uh, lastly on that, I'm sorry I had to duck out. Um, it's about resources for us. And that's all it comes down to, the money that we have in, have in hand to do it. Um, we do have a website, www.rwsn.org.au, which has 3,400 stories from injured workers, as well as articles about injured, the workers' compensation system and managing that. So we are present, but it's just about the cash. It's about the dough for us. It, it, it's as basic as that. Next question. Yeah, just, um, just a slightly different angle. Um, Workers who work with injuries, has there ever been, like, people who work with injuries and work when they're sick, has there ever been a, a connection with this that work through their people working not, on um, not, not that I'm really, not that I can really think of. Um, I mean, people do work with their, you know, with um, with injuries because they've got to pay their bills, and um, and also work is an important part of their life. No one really wants to, you know, this idea that people are sitting at home, um, you know, counting and waiting for the pots of gold that Compo is supposed to get you at the end of the day if you're sitting at home not working is just a fallacy perpetuated by insurers. Um, but there's no doubt that people who carry injuries who are not properly compensated uh, get worse. You know, their back injuries deteriorate, they go from having a back injury to knee injuries, they go from having, you know, bad shoulders to bad necks and ultimately it may kill them earlier than, they, than life otherwise would because of the nature of their injuries. So I suspect there probably is. Uh, it certainly does cause a lot of damage. But a lot of people also want to get back to work and engage with their comrades and, you know, particularly in construction, you know, work is a really big part. It's still a male-dominated industry. We're seeing more women come in and that's fantastic. But it is still very much a big part of how they socialise. And, um, and when that's taken away, the psychological impact of that can be sometimes worse than the physical injury that people sustain. So, um, yeah, but I, there's no doubt that people are forced to go back to work too early. They're forced by their doctors. We've got companies who send their HR managers to doctor's appointments with the workers and stand over doctors to say, you really must bring this person back to work. We can have them counting, you know, paper clips uh, because, you know, they envisage that somehow this is going to blow out their costs in their, in their premiums when people should be probably at home recovering from a spinal fusion or a rotor cuff replacement or their knees being replaced. So um, there's a lot of, you know, really injustice in the way in which the system is uh, processed as well that puts a lot of pressure on people to sometimes come back too early if they happen to have a big employer that is affected by the uh, claims experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just add yeah. one part of our inquiries about secondary injuries. Emma? Um, so I just wanted to say on that that I think um, 
I think the medical system should be kind of the source of truth. And I'm not saying, you know, I mean, there are some doctors out there that are absolutely doing the wrong thing, that are doctors for hire, that will say whatever the employer wants in order to diminish the nature of someone's injury. But we are also seeing doctors being pressured either by an employer or sometimes by a worker. If, if they, you know, sometimes they say, look, I know you're saying this is a situation, but I'd really like to try you know, could you alter my certificate or whatever? So we need to Insurance go. Companies yeah, exactly. The whole, Insurance the whole, the, the medical profession should be the source of truth, and and should be directing the programs. But the way, you know, we've got all these other consultants that interact with that system now that come up with, you know, return to work plans and other things. I mean, the system is meant to be about getting people back to work as soon as that's safe to do so with modified duties and and you know, psychologically, as Rita said, that is really important for some people, but it's not always possible for others because of the natures of their injuries. So you see some people that have capacity that being refused and others who really don't have capacity being pressured to return. Um, so um, I've not heard of any connection though with that leading you know, to deaths at work, although no, you know, obviously if people are working when they shouldn't be, that's not good for their health. Um, so you know, we've got to get that system right so that we have the, the medical profession um, playing, you know, a, an honest and constructive role in deciding what's right and working with um, the worker and, uh, and the employer to try and make, you know, space for that person within the workplace that isn't going to exacerbate their injury and that gives them a durable long-term return to work. I mean, how we can have a system that says employers have to provide suitable duties, oh, but you can sack after six months, it's just ridiculous. It's one of the things we've got to work on changing. Um, if you ask the TWU, they'd have a very strict answer for you, which is yes, it does. There was a case about four or five years ago of a driver driving from Gosford to Sydney who crashed into a small car. Um, that driver was found to be on drugs. They were painkillers. He was driving because his insurance ran out and he was sent back to work. So he was on too much painkillers and long shifts to deal with his, man, his injury and the car, the truck at the same time. That resulted in two deaths. So there's an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, well, uh, thanks to all of you for your, your presentation and for your work. Uh, thanks to all of you for your presentation and your work. M my question might be a silly one, but Understandably, all the examples you used, I think, this afternoon related to blue-collar industries. Has the issue ever come up in relation to white-collar industries? And the reason I'm asking the question is because just look at the demographics of the Australian workforce in terms of the campaign. Can I make a point here that um, is very, very good? The new workers' compensation system means you can't um, get compensation for hearts or stroke, heart attacks or stroke. Um, that's different in Japan, because a lot of the workers' compensation that goes in there is about heart attacks and strokes and old workers who have been working too long. So I'm aware of at least five people last year who suffered a heart attack or a stroke, work-related, who weren't able to receive workers' compensation there. So that's a major issue for white-collar workers, I have to say, especially older white-collar workers. Um, so, yeah... There are less deaths in the white-collar industries than there are in other industries. The most deaths we have are in farms. And the major reason for that is the capacity to get to um, medica medical support in farms. So the next one down is construction, unfortunately. 
Yeah. Transport. Yeah, the transport. And the figures for transport are actually a lot lies. So it's a lot higher than what you expect. Some of the accidents aren't called work, aren't, don't go into workers' comp. So there's a lot of that. But heart attack and strokes in the workforce, very common. Um, and psychological injuries are extremely common. Um, we just call them workplace violence more than anything else. But in terms of death, heart attacks and strokes are up there. Oh, so, yeah, we have um, Natasha, who is the new workers, Work Health and Safety Officer for Union New South Wales. Thanks. Sorry to jump in here, but um, yes, I'm the new work health, safe of, work health and Safety Officer. But I've just been um, an organiser with the Independent Education Union for nearly eight years. So we deal with mostly teachers. And psych-harm is very, very prolific in that industry. Suicide is not uncommon. Um, we do also, well, the IAU also looks after other people who work in non-government schools like maintenance workers, uh, counsellors, librarians, any, anyone who works in one of those schools. And I had a case of a, um, a swim coach who developed a skin condition to chlorine, um, was ousted from a very prestigious school and ended up um, suicidal and in a hospital because he was trying to self-harm, so it's very, very common. Sorry about jumping in. It's probably more directed to Emma, but when you outlined that process of the six weeks when it went through in the other house, was that just a matter of interest? Was that when they made the changes to the... No, no, that, that was later. Um, yeah, a couple of years afterwards was when they changed, made the change to the dust disease board, a separate kind of. They knocked us off the dust board last year. I was yeah. on the dust disease board. Oh, I had been for a very long time. It was one of the saddest but best roles that I had, and uh, they just wound us up because they don't oh, like unions yeah, on boards. Um, Rita was on the board with my dad with two dust diseases. It was a good board. I know I'm not just in Victoria, in um, the setup in, um, sorry, New South Wales, the setup in Victoria is just as, um, as dire. And <clears throat> one of the things that is impacting, especially, is that as the insurers in Victoria work cover um, these aliens, um, one of the things to get 
you off the books as soon as possible, is to get you through onto um, uh, Commonwealth, inverted commas, benefits. Uh, the DHS is in appalling state. Um, it's been six months uh, and I still haven't had any resolution. Um, everything that's been canvassed so far about uh, both employers um, standing over um, doctors. We have a system in Victoria called the ACCS, which is the Accident Compensation Conciliation Service. Very, very skewed towards uh, the insurer. Um, they also have an independent body, uh, and again, it's in the, the pocket of, uh, of the insurers. My comment is just to say that <coughs> there's, um, in solidarity with New South Wales, similar things exist in all jurisdictions. It doesn't matter what state. However, the ones that, um, like Victoria and New South Wales, that uh, have been liberalised um, are obviously in a dire state. 85% unionism is because of the activity of the workplace uh, and I can't stress more how important it is to have union members <coughs> actually being able to speak to people on the ground and proselytising to become union members. Thank you. That is primary. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Also happening. So I sit on our superannuation board. And obviously, as all of our workers' comp statutory rights have been wound up and there's not that much access to common law and people can't get access to Commonwealth um, you know, social security because you know they might have a home or a spouse that earns a little bit of an income, there's been um, quite an increase in total employment disability claim applications. And now you've got the superannuation insurers wanting to uh, redefine what that all means to make it harder for workers to get access to their total and permanent disability benefits, which for some of them is the absolute last resort, uh, because it means taking out their superannuation as well. And I'll say, for example, for construction workers, they still pretty much retire today on only about $80,000 worth of super. Um, so those total and permanent disability benefit insurance um, products are really, really important. And because they've lost access to lump sums and common law and proper workers' comp, um, they've had to, you know, use these benefits, you've now got the insurers in that space trying to cut those benefits, and the same arguments. You've got, you've got people running around in the superannuation sphere saying, oh, it's all just being driven by the lawyers and, you know, ambulance chasers, and it's not. It's actually workers who are desperate to pay off their mortgages because they can't work full-time anymore or they can't work at all because of their injuries. So it's just got this uh, compounding effect that I think will take a long time to turn back if we're able to turn it back. So, um, uh, I just also want to say that um, we have certainly talked over the years to the different states and the TLCs as there have been threats and changes to their systems. So that, I wouldn't say that dialogue's kind of perfect, but we are talking to each other so that we can help each other out as people have gone through their systems having threats as well. Um, and I know the Injured Workers Support Network model is also one that other states are looking at or have started, Victoria. Um, so, um, yeah, that's another really big positive. But you're right, you know, we have the same insurers, we have the same practices. But the Victorian Ombudsman's report 
uh, has in Victoria has just been fabulous in that it, we've referred to it that it's our regulatory bodies are looking at it are now being forced to respond to a Victorian Ombudsman's report because of the huge similarities between the industries and the fact that Victoria is now talking about in-housing the insurance function so that it's no longer uh, you know, contracted out. That's one of the principles in our workers' comp principles. And if Victoria does it, it's going to be so much easier for us to do it here. So I think kind of us all working together, but also, I mean, we, I don't want one big system because I just think that'll be a race to the bottom. But I think, yeah, if we can all be beginning to try and get improvements in different areas and doing things like the Ombudsman's Report, doing the in-housing, um, then I think we can see, improve, we can all help each other out get improvements. The other thing I think in terms of the role of unions, and, and, and not, look, not all, all unions are like this, but some unions haven't engaged with people once they're injured. They're not at work, it is hard. And I think that's an area that we really are looking to improve. I mean, some unions continue to do it and do a fabulous job, but I think unions do recognise that they need to do better when, once people are injured. And, and um, yeah, and it's a big focus, a big ACT conference that's coming up in June this year as well. There's a whole stream about workers' comp and WHS. So it's, it's well and truly on the radar. Um, I'd like to put kudos to the CFMU because the first meeting I had was Rita approaching me to have a talk, talk about what we're doing, what the CFMU can do. And what they said to me was, if you've got any construction workers, make sure they give us a call, whether they're unionised or not. We'll at least put them in touch with our, um, our lawyers. Um, but particularly in Victoria, I was there during the planning meeting with um, Sam Hatfield and Paul Sutton from Victoria Trades Hall and about 20 um, injured workers who were talking about how to approach the new Liberal Labor government about changing. So I'm glad that's happened. I haven't heard from Sam for a while. But a lot of that's come from that meeting, and there are 150 injured workers at the first Injured Worker Support Network meeting in Victoria when I was down there. So a lot's happening. Have a chat to Victoria Trades Hall, see what you can do. It. A lot is happening. They're putting me to shame, I'm glad to say. Yeah. Um, we'll take two more questions. Yeah? I work in higher education, which is very high in casualisation of the workforce and very high in prestige of university international rankings. It's created a toxic culture of abuse right across the system, bullying everywhere, people getting seriously ill, and there's been suicides as a result of this. This needs government intervention to stop this culture, and I'm wondering what unions can do to try and fix it. But all the universities do is people try to raise issues of, of bullying being affecting a staff member if they protect their prestige and they protect the abuser. So they have adopted a Catholic church model of protection of prestige and abuse. But it does need a significant government intervention to address this on hospital level. I had a meeting with the PSA yesterday about this particular issue. Um, so there are some things that are going to start rolling off that they're going to do for their members in the higher education service. The NTEU and me have had discussions about this in the past. So it's hard in the higher education. It's really difficult. Yeah, sure. The thing that I think about bullying and harassment is it's been sort of hived off, like it's not a safety issue. It's not a, it's just, it's not a, you know, that should be just as serious as someone falling off the edge of a building. And I think whilst we sort of deal with those, uh, that kind of psychological abuse by employers and employees in a way that's different to everything else, it kind of doesn't normalise that, where it should be treated like any other workplace has it, and those employers should be prosecuted 
under the Work Health and Safety Act, and I don't think WorkCover has ever brought a case against an employer for um, the injury they've done to um, someone due to bullying and harassment. You've had those laws in Victoria, a criminal laws change where the most serious of um, you know, bullying and harassment that leads to a fatality or serious psychological injury, people can go to jail now, I mean, and that's Brody's law, and that was that took the mum and dad of a, of, a, of a girl who was driven to suicide by her employer and her colleagues for bullying and harassment at work, suicide, to get um, changes to the criminal law. But criminal law's hard, and you don't, you know, the bringing those sorts of prosecutions are not easy, whereas we should be treating that like every other um, you know, safety issue, whether it's a physical or a psychological one, and those employers should be held to account equally. And I think because it's dealt with so differently, it's it's kind of sort of said, said to be too hard. But to me, it's just another abuse by a bad employer, and they should be treated like you know anyone who's who's caused a physical injury to someone. There, there was an article in the Herald yesterday, I think, or the day before. I posted it on our Facebook page yesterday, talking about bullying and that toxic workplaces. Um, the, the worker is more likely to have an average of 14 weeks off work, which is three times a physical injury, and it costs the employer three times as much to have that worker off as well. So it's not even a... If you want to be heartless about it, it's unproductive as well to have bullying in the workplace. The government actually has a huge role in why this is happening as well. They include the model of higher education, focusing on education and the way the funding model is set up, is set up is causing this casualisation of workforce. And then the government themselves, like when Christopher Fine was um, education minister, I was watching questions one day on TV, and he was completely stressed that the, the rankings of the Australian universities weren't as high as some elite institution overseas. I'm someone who's had to look into how all of those work. We're, we're competing in Australia against universities that are vastly different to our own, which we shouldn't even be trying to compete with. So this is why it needs government intervention to try and turn that culture around. It's terrible culture. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, Natasha, maybe, we used to have a big um, uh, bullying um, uh, kind of statement, it was the Charter of Dignity and Respect, and this was going back well over 10 years ago as being a big focus of what we were doing about work, health and safety. And it's still kind of there, but we should probably be putting some more work into that. I think, though, we, we really need to get the regulatory bodies focusing on compliance. And they do target different issues. They do pick different issues that they're going to focus on. And, and they've, they've never really done anything around psychological injuries. And I think Rita is right that it is kind of being seen as being, oh, that's just kind of separate or that's to do with personality differences or, or anything like that, all those kind of things. And also we don't have the same kind of rigour in our disputes processes anymore because union density has fallen and, and it's harder to get things fixed the right way um, than it used to be in the past. So I do think it is a, a significant area that's well and truly on the radar. I actually think, and you know, we've said it in our submission, that because WorkCover admits that the system causes psychological injury for injured workers. So even if you hurt your arm, have a physical injury, that the system is then psychologically injuring you. And, and we have talked, uh, you know, somewhat informally about whether or not that's something that is actually actionable. You know, could we get a whole lot of workers who, who've had that consequence because of their cases and that would certainly get the government's attention. So that's one of the things that is probably not near the top of the list, but it's certainly being talked about uh, because, um, you know, it's, it's definitely something we need to do more about, I agree.
One final point I'll make about that is in the last three years, three to five years, the language that the academics are researching this um, has changed. So we're now calling it, as it is, workplace violence. So that's very much part and parcel of what they're studying, is not bullying and harassment, but calling it, naming it, labelling it what it is, which is workplace violence. So that's a change that's happened quite recently as well, and that hopefully will filter out as all these things do, I hope. It's um, all about profit. The, the education sector in this country is a massive export industry. Absolutely. And uh, you know what? They don't do shit about business. And that's the problem. And it's, it's like in construction. It's like it's like in, in the maritime sector. It is money that's driving this. And that's what's driving the conduct of traditional institutions as well. And uh, we've got to change that around. We're changing around okay. by making it a political All right. Um, I might hand over to Trish, who is one of the person I was going to invite to speak, but I couldn't actually get hold of her in time before my holiday, so she's agreed right at the last minute to do some speaking. Hello everyone, and for those I haven't met, I'm Trish Doyle. It's probably not a usual thing that um, on a sunny Saturday afternoon, your local member of parliament turns up to um, politics in the pub, and I'm here every politics in the pub. I am very proud Vice President of the Blue Mountains Unions Council, so I just want to say that first up. Very proud. Um, as part of the wrap-up, um, I always want to thank the key people who bring this together. So Rowan, for, for coming along as a member of Unions Council and suggesting this as a topic that we needed to discuss, that people needed to hear about, um, to rev people up to be active. Thank you. Deb Smith, as our... Um, incredible secretary uh, your energy and your efforts and your work knows no bounds um, thank you and, and the troopers um, with a beer in hand Kerry and Nick um, as always Bronwyn doing the raffle um, it's always a core group um, Jim Angel here as well it's always a core group that bring together these politics in the pub so thank you thank you everyone um, so I saw Susan Lammerman, um, both of us, boiling in the heat down at the Springwood Foundation Day today, um, but drumming up support for, for unions and workers down there in our own way. So she said to pass on her apologies. Um, our speakers, I, I think it is worth mentioning Rita Malia, Emma Maiden, how important it is to have women who stand up, speak out, fight back. You, I put you up there with Sally McCann. Thank you. Thank you for articulating in a passionate and informed way the issues that we need to actually discuss in our communities. And it's not just here in the mountains. And, you know, we like having a good discussion about union issues. Um, but it is really important that those who actually stand up and speak to our communities are as impassioned as you. So um, I'm really, really proud that um, you are at the forefront of pushing through and very good choice, Rowan. On behalf of the Injured Workers Support Network is getting some great speakers like these two. Thank you so much. Um, on that note, the, the fabulous Sally McManus will join Blue Mountains Unions Council um, on our store for Winter Magic Festival. So if you want to come along and start having those conversations with people or learn a few skills about someone who does it so well, um, come and join us. Come and join us um, on the 24th of June. Um, we will have a stall as part of Winter Magic and
and afterwards um, members of Unions Council um, are getting together with, with Sally to have a bit of a dinner and a, and a drink, so make sure you're part of that. Um, I just wanted to, I wanted to say this, when I come along to events like this and I sit here and I hear the cynicism about politicians, it always hits me because I don't put myself in that category. And that's really important for you to know. It's important to keep me grounded um, and it's important for you to know. When I was participating in the very frustrating, very frustrating legislation, the debate around the legislation to overturn the workers' compensation laws, <coughs> I remember thinking, <coughs> thinking about the way I needed to stand up and throw back to some of those on the other side talking about you know, the bean counter argument um, for um, enshrining the legislation and, and making it even tougher um, for workers. I wanted to stand up and say, listen here, you <coughs> bastard, what would you know about being a worker? Have you ever worked in your life? Um, and, and feeling as though the Parliament of New South Wales or a Parliament is a place that I don't really belong because I am working class, because I don't look like a politician. I, I'm told every day there I don't sound like one. It's really important that I'm there. It's important that I shout out across the chamber. What would you know? Um, and, and on that note, you raised a couple of really important um, points that we need to use as part of our discussions in workplaces, with residents, with families and young people who are entering the, entering the workforce. Sham contracting, the casualisation of workforce and anti-worker governments. That is why we're in the position we're in. And that's what we have to fight back. Um, just remember those words of Sally McManus. Stand up, speak out, fight back. Um, we, need to, we need to speak our truth and we absolutely need to tell stories because stories empower the statistics. Um, I stood with my husband and my baby on, as part of the 1998 MUA dispute on the waterfronts with Patrick Corporation. Um, I stood there with people who had been locked out because they were union members, locked out of their workplace. I stood with families that were starving for weeks on end. And I will never forget that. That's etched in my brain, it's etched in the blood that runs through my veins and every time I, I rise to my feet um, with this privileged position I have in the parliament for workers to speak on issues that impact workers, whether it's someone who's been hurt physically or somebody who's been hurt psychologically. Um, I remember that time. Um, I just want to acknowledge that there are others um, who are good workers and are fighting hard on behalf of workers in our community. We have also amongst us today the president of the new president of the TAFE Teachers Association, Annette Bennett. And uh, she's out there every opportunity she gets fighting for TAFE teachers and TAFE teachers and TAFE institutes at the moment are really struggling. The morale is the lowest it's ever been. So we need to actually remember them and we need to tell the good stories. Remember that um, the TAFE cuts hurt and TAFE, um, TAFE is too good to lose. Ain't that right, Jude? <laughs> TAFE's too good to lose. Um, I'd like everybody to make sure that you've got your raffle tickets ready for some great prizes. Um, you're going you're gonna to raise... 
Okay, I just want to, I've been asked by Susan Templeman and Doug Cameron to give a bit of a plug for their, they're having a politics in the pub next Wednesday night down at um, the Ori, no, the Royal Hotel. If we want to turn up and talk, well, I'll be in New South Wales Parliament, but if people would like to talk about um, employment issues, workplace issues, Brendan O'Connor, the Shadow Minister, will be there, Doug Cameron and Susan, obviously, as a local federal member. Um, there's some flyers up here if uh, you'd like, and Annette's got some if you'd like some. Just while Rowan's getting his uh, raffle ready, um, tomorrow, if anyone finds himself down at Port Bodney, the MUA are actually going to dispute <coughs> that is a replay of the Patrick's 1998 yes. dispute. Ah. Patrick's have basically outsourced a, source, a section of their uh, operations and um, basically put their workers on notice. Uh, there is a community protest, 12 o'clock, Botany Hotel. I'm told it's a, ho told it's a hotel with no pub because it's been renovated, uh, with no beer, it's been renovated. Uh, but it's Penrim Road um, off Foreshore Drive. Um, so if anyone's down there, or if you know people, Facebook it. Um, you know, they really do need to have the community uh, and workers behind them. They are, they are legally unable to participate in these things because they're all subject of um, injunctions, etc. So they need the community to, to back them. And uh, so if anyone finds themselves down in Botany Way or knows of the people that are going to be down there, they'd love to have people there. It's one o'clock. And Rita's promised to buy anyone who comes a beer at the pub with no beer. <laughs>